Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. We are midway through our series called James, whereby we are looking at the book of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the younger brother to Christ. And what you need to know, probably the most interesting fact, or one of the interesting facts about James, is he was not a believer in his big brother in the sense that he was the Messiah. I don't know if you've ever had sibling rivalry, but that was certainly going on in this case. You know, there always seems to be a favourite in the family. Well, I'm sure that went to Jesus, and I think his brothers and sisters were probably jealous of him because in every family, there's always one who thinks he's God's gift to everything. Yeah. Well, uh, James, I'm sure, looked at Jesus and thought, my goodness me, you're the favourite and you think you're God's gift to everyone and God's gift to everything. Well, here's the reality. Uh, Jesus was God's gift to everyone and to everything. And uh, he did not believe that his big brother or big half-brother was in fact the Messiah. It wasn't until after his death, burial and resurrection that he became a believer. And he was so impacted, he became a leader in the Church of Jerusalem. And uh, it was for this purpose that he wrote this particular letter to all those Jewish believers that had been scattered throughout the land because of the persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem. And the main theme and the main reason for writing this particular letter is that the church would grow up in spiritual maturity. And so we've subtitled this particular series, Marks of Maturity. And the first week we looked at stability being a mark of maturity. And last week, Pastor Ash shared on faith being a mark of maturity, which brings us to week three. And I wanna look at wisdom being a mark of maturity. Everyone say wisdom. And so we're going to read from the book of James, James chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter today. Everyone say whole chapter. So that's 18 verses. And if you will, follow on your screens, Bibles or behind me, that would be fantastic. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow brothers, or believers, sorry, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Everyone Sorry, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into mouths of horses and make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. Likewise, the tongue is a very small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and it, oh sorry, and is in itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. These are strong words. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth we praise and we curse. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? 
Neither can salt water produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Everyone say wisdom. But if you harbour bitterness, envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, ambition there you will find disorder in every kind of every practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Father, I ask that you would help me share your word today. And I pray that you would go before me and open the hearts of our... (laughs) I pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart, that we may have wisdom and understanding in order that we might know you better. And we ask that in Jesus' name. And everyone said... James in this letter starts, and he starts by talking a lot about the tongue. And he brings three incredible pictures to us, or many pictures, to make three incredible points. And the first point is that the tongue has the power to direct. He said it's like when we place a bit in the horse's mouth and you as the rider through that small bit are able to turn the horse right, to turn the horse left. You are able to direct that horse. And James is saying just like the bit is able to direct the horse, so your tongue will direct your life. And to make the point very clear, he says it's just like a rudder. Even though the ship is large and the winds are strong, the boat has a very small rudder and that very small rudder is able to turn and to steer and to direct the ship. And so too, this little piece of skin in our mouth, it may be small, but it has the power to direct our lives. It has the power to do good and it has the power to do evil. The Bible says that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. God's Word, God's spoken Word is able to direct our lives. And just as God's Word is able to direct our lives, the words that we speak will direct our lives. Secondly, he says it also has the power to destroy and he draws a parallel with fire. He says a small spark can burn down a whole forest and we live in the land of bushfires, particularly in the summer seasons. And we have seen firsthand the devastation of a small spark and the devastation the big fire can create. And Paul is saying this small little uh, tongue in our mouth has a damage or the power to do great damage and destroy people's lives, just like a bushfire. He also parallels it with dangerous animals. He says it's like a deadly poison. We in this nation in Australia, I think it is we house the top 10 deadliest snakes. I think I'm right when I say that. If it's not the top 10, it's most of the top 10 for sure. And uh, Paul, uh, sorry, James is paralleling the poisonous animals that are out there with the poison that our tongue can produce. And thirdly, he says about the tongue that it has the power to delight. Just like a water fountain, or as James calls it, a spring provides fresh water in order to keep us alive and refresh us, so too the tongue can refresh and bless people. 
And then he talks about a tree. A tree is vital to the environment, economy. It provides fruit and shade. And likewise, our tongue is able to provide refreshing and blessing to people. So this, this tongue, James says, has the power to direct, to destroy and to delight. And then he brings this challenge. He says, freshwater springs can't produce salt water. Is that fair comment? And then he says it another way. He says, a fig tree can't produce grapes and a grapevine can't produce figs. In other words, nature reproduces after its own kind. And what James is doing here, he's using the consistent example of nature, like a fig tree and a grapevine, to challenge the inconsistencies that are in you and I. So he's using the consistencies of nature in order to challenge our inconsistencies. And he says it this way in verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. And he says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. If the tongue is inconsistent, there is something radically wrong with our hearts. And such duplicity is inconsistent with a life redeemed by Christ. And believers ought to be growing more consistent in their speech. The tongue more than anything else reveals the already and the not yet of Christian sanctification. Sanctification is a big Christian word that simply means to be set apart or to be made holy. And there are three parts or three stages or three phases to sanctification. The first one is our positional sanctification or in other words, justification. And justification is what takes place the moment you and I accept Christ into our life. That is a great and glorious day. The day we accept Christ into our life, we are justified. We are free from the penalty of sin. It's just as if you and I have never sinned. God removes our sin as far as the East is from the West and we are redeemed, uh, declared clean and redeemed because we have been justified. That is positional sanctification. Then there is ultimate sanctification or another word for that would be glorification. And that's when one day we will be free from the presence of sin itself. Colin passed away just last night and he has moved into this place of glorification where he is free from the very presence of sin. To be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. He is not only free from the penalty of sin, but he's also free from the presence of sin because he's not only been justified, but he's also been glorified. And this is the work of sanctification. But then there's this middle bit and the middle bit is where it gets messy and tricky. The middle bit is known as progressive sanctification and that's the daily maturing process that frees us from the power of sin. Justification frees us from the penalty of sin. Glorification frees us from the presence of sin. But progressive sanctification is the daily maturing process that frees us from the power of sin. And this type of sanctification is to be pursued by every believer at an earnest level. James says it this way, the tongue is a restless evil. It's a deadly poison. And before we get too discouraged and feel like giving up and giving in, he does give us hope. 
And he says this, that the only way to tame the tongue and the only way to redeem our speech comes from godly wisdom being imparted to us. And you and I are on this process of daily maturing and daily becoming more like Christ. And if we're not, we should. In the desire of every believer's heart should be a desire to become more like Christ and to mature to be more like Him. A man in Boston was entertaining a famous Chinese scholar and uh, he met the Oriental friend at a train station and he rushed him to the subway. And as they went through the subway station, the host panted to his guest and he said, if we run and if we catch the train, we can save ourselves three minutes. To which the Chinese philosopher replied, and what significant thing shall we do with those three minutes that we are saving? He probably said it this way, oh, And what three things? No. <laughs> Knowledge is one thing, but wisdom is another. Wisdom is the correct use of knowledge. And this is the pursuit that we should all be on to have not just wisdom, but what James calls godly wisdom. In actual fact, James in his writing highlights that there are two kinds of wisdom. There is a godly wisdom, and there is a worldly wisdom, and both godly wisdom and worldly different are va- worldly wisdom are vastly different, and they both are very different in their origin, in their operation, and in their outcome. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The first one is when it comes to worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, they are different in their origin. They are different in their starting point. Worldly wisdom is from below and godly wisdom, James says, is from above. James says that worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual and of the devil. In other words, he's highlighting the three enemies that you and I face. The three enemies that you and I faced were the same three enemies that James faced and it's the same three enemies that he was addressing to the Jewish believers some 2,000 years ago. And those three enemies are the world, the flesh and the devil. The world, the flesh and the devil are our three enemies that we face. The world is a wisdom that is governed by our world. We see that in our teaching of evolution in our educational system. It's a worldly wisdom that is brought into our educational system and taught to everyone who goes through school and university. It's a worldly way of thinking. It's a worldly wisdom and it comes from a place and that place is the world, a collective group of people thinking a certain way. The second enemy is the flesh and that is the wisdom that is governed by our soul, our mind and our emotions. Have you ever found yourself saying, I don't feel like going to church today? And we reason it away with, because I had a late night. That, that is a wisdom that comes from your flesh. And when we give into that, we are giving into a wisdom that does not come from above, but comes from below. Wisdom that comes from above says, no, Jesus went to church on a regular basis, basis uh, regular basis and made it his custom. Yeah. 
And so because Jesus made it His custom, I'm going to make it my custom. And the moment we make that decision, we are denying the flesh and we are making a decision based upon godly wisdom instead of worldly wisdom. Two enemies, one is the world, one is the flesh and the third is the devil. And that's a wisdom that's governed by the devil himself. We see that in the very first chapter in the Bible when Adam is tempted by the devil. One of the greatest strategies of the devil is to convince the world he doesn't exist. If we can believe that he doesn't exist, then we're going to be fighting each other. There's a lot of infighting that takes place in churches, in families, in businesses. And you need to understand that there is an enemy that wants to kill, steal and destroy from you and everything that you own. And we see that take place in the Garden of Eden. And Adam looked at the fruit and and it seemed right to him that uh, it looked nice, so why not eat it? And so he made a decision based again on the flesh and the temptation that came from the enemy to take a bite of that piece of fruit. And when he did, he disobeyed God and he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh and the devil. And we need to know how to combat those three. And the way we combat those three is not embracing the wisdom of what the world says, that we don't embrace the wisdom of what we feel and we don't embrace the wisdom that comes through the temptation of the enemy, but that we make a decision based upon godly wisdom that comes from above which is wisdom that is governed by God Himself. And we see Jesus doing that when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before He went to the cross, there was a world that was against Him and wanting to put Him to death. So the enemy He was facing was the worldly uh, enemy. He also had the flesh that He was dealing with. He said, if this can be removed, please remove it. And so He was dealing with the enemy of the flesh and how He was presently feeling. And we know that Lucifer was there tempting Him And so Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had these three enemies actively working against Him. And Jesus could have made a decision based upon earthly wisdom or worldly wisdom, based upon what the world says, based upon the temptations of the enemy or based upon how He was feeling. But He was able to put all those three things in the context of godly wisdom and He was able to live above the line and not below the line and make a decision based upon what God said. And He came to this conclusion, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the moment Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, He put Himself above the line and embraced the higher calling and He didn't make a decision based upon worldly wisdom, what the world says, what the devil says, or what I say, but He made a decision based upon what God says. And if we are going to embrace the uh, process of sanctification, we can't go by what the world says. We can't go by what we say. We can't go by what the devil says. We have to go by what God says. And every time we deny ourselves and we make a decision based upon godly wisdom and say yes to Him, that's when we grow. That's when we become more like God. That's when we become more Christ-like. Jesus modelled to us how to live. And in that moment, He denied all these enemies and He made a decision based upon godly wisdom because He embraced what God said. You want godly wisdom? Let's do things God's way. When you feel like doing something that you know is against what God wants, that's where the battle is. 
And at that moment, we have to say, am I gonna make a decision based upon how I feel, worldly wisdom, or what God says, godly wisdom? And that's the decision we are faced with multiple times over every day of our lives. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, He wants to empower us to make good, godly decisions based upon godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. These two things are different in their origin and secondly, they are different in their operation. Worldly wisdom operates from reason. Godly wisdom operates from revelation. You see, there's a big difference between a good idea and a God idea. You know, I think back to one of the incredible stories in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Abraham, he receives an incredible promise from God by way of revelation. And God says to him, you're going to be the father of a multitude. You're going to be the father of nations. And I don't know about you, but that's an exciting moment in your life. It's like being called down the front, getting prophesied over by the visiting speaker. You fall over, you roll down, you come up speaking in tongues. It's all happening all at once. It's just one of those incredible days in the life of a person. And Abraham is experiencing that at that moment. And what he didn't factor in was the waiting process. And every day he waited, he got older. Have you noticed that about you? Every day, just, you just get older. You just wait, I'm a day older, I'm a day older. Here's the thing, when Abraham received this word, he wasn't young. So he was an old man with an old wife and every day they waited, they were getting older. And his wife, Sarah, got to such an age that she was beyond bearing a child. Now bear with me. Let's put ourselves in the story for a moment. Abraham, having heard God, that he would be the father of a nation, reasons that she is now too old to have a child. So I am gonna help God out. And that, before we put our Christian hat on and get judgmental, to me, that is very reasonable. If you've been told you're gonna have kids and your wife is unable to produce kids, it is reasonable to think, maybe I should get a, a younger version a younger model, and that's exactly what Abraham did. He got himself a maidservant and was able to have a child through his maidservant. And at that moment, he thought he'd done a good thing because his good thing was based upon a good idea, not a God idea. It was based on reason, not the revelation he first received. And the trouble is with reasonable thinking, it creates long-term problems. And I want you to know that that one decision of Abraham's based upon a reasonable understanding to help God out has had ramifications ever since to this very day. That one child, that Ishmael that was born that day has had ramifications ever since. Abraham's idea seemed reasonable because worldly wisdom usually does. But godly wisdom comes out of revelation and understanding that God knows better than I. See, we don't always fully understand God's way. That's what makes His wisdom of a higher authority than ours. If we understood everything God was doing, we would be God. 
And so we have to defer to His wisdom. And worldly wisdom gets in the way of that. See, I think, personally, it's very reasonable that when two people love each other, they should be able to get married. And the reason I say that is because I love my wife and I was able to get married. And I think it's very reasonable that two people falling in love should be able to get married. And I also think if those two people just so happen to be both male, it's still very reasonable. And I also think if those two people that love each other happen to both be female, it's very reasonable because they love each other. After all, that's why I marry Kath, because I love her. I think that's very reasonable. Can we just take our Christian hats off and our judgmental hats off for a moment and think about it? It's very reasonable to conclude that if you love each other, why not get married? Come on. That's reasonable. Here's the only concern I have with this reason. Where does it start? And where does it stop? Where does our reason start and stop? Because it's reasonable that two people love each other, no matter what sex they are, they should get married based upon how they feel and what they think. Then where does that stop? Because right now, there is a man in America, a grown man, that doesn't feel like a grown man. He feels like he is a six-year-old girl. And so he dresses like a six-year-old girl and acts like a six-year-old girl. And if it's reasonable that no matter what sex you are, if you love each other, you want to get married based upon how you feel, then it's also reasonable that if he feels like being a six-year-old girl, that is also very reasonable. Where does this start and stop? I have a problem with that, that that man is not a six-year-old girl. And let's say that if a man then loves a boy, isn't it also reasonable that he should be able to express that love too? But we have laws, Tony, in place to stop that. That's what we do. But the moment we open the door up to changing those laws, anything goes. So reason creates more problems long-term than ever before. And it gets more complicated because let's just say there's a six-year-old boy who actually feels like he's a 20-year-old man. And now in his thinking, he's above the legal age to actually get married. He's no longer a minor because he doesn't feel like a minor. Where does this start and where does this stop? See, I'm not here in judgment and nor should any one of us. At this church, Victory Church, we love people. God so loved the world. That includes all people of all bents and all persuasions. And I'm not even here today to tell you that I'm right and those Christians are right. I'm actually here to say the exact opposite. I'm not right. I'm here to say that God is, 
and I choose to take my decisions that are not right and defer to His wisdom. Because there are lots of things I feel like doing that I don't do, that I could reason away, but I choose not to because I defer to His wisdom. So I'm not right. I just surrender to the one who I believe is right because He was there before I was, which makes Him a higher authority than me. And so I choose to defer to His wisdom. And it was He who chose things to be a certain way and I come into line with what He chose them to be. And so I defer from my worldly reasoning and my worldly thinking, which is very reasonable at times, to a higher authority and a higher way of thinking. And I choose to defer to His greater wisdom. That's the difference between reason and revelation. My revelation is that God was there before I was. God is smarter than I am. God is bigger than I am. God is stronger than I am. I don't have all the answers to all my questions. That's what makes God, God and me, me. I lack wisdom. And so I'm gonna not change the laws of the land. I'm actually gonna defer to the wisdom of the one who set them long before I was ever around. There's a big difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and that is seen in the difference between revelation and reason. There's a difference in origin, there's a difference in operation and there's also a difference in outcomes. Worldly wisdom produces problems, godly wisdom produces peace. The world has a great deal of knowledge from which we can benefit and I thank God for that. But there is not so much wisdom Man may accumulate knowledge as he unlocks the secrets of the universe, but he doesn't know what to do with that knowledge and consequently misuses or abuses it. Man has improved means to unimproved ends. In other words, no matter how much man learns, he still seems to come back to the same old issues and problems that he's always been dealing with in this world. In other words, things have become more efficient, They've become more modern. They've become more instant, but they haven't necessarily become more better. Whereas God's peace, uh, God's wisdom, sorry, leads to peace. James says that this godly wisdom is firstly peace loving. It's peace loving. I'm so grateful for the peace of God which transcends all understanding. That peace that enables me to sleep when I'm facing things that are beyond my ability to grasp or deal with. I thank God for the peace that is found with God through Jesus and the peace of God that is found as we live with Him. But this wisdom, this godly wisdom is not just peace loving, but James says it's also peace making. And this is an important peace. It's not just peace keeping, but it's also peace making. In other words, godly wisdom has a voice and you and I must speak up. You know, if you just leave things undealt with, 
It doesn't get better. It usually gets worse. I remember when we moved into our new home and one of our kids, I won't mention them by name, unbeknownst to us, left a sandwich in a bag that they put in the cupboard. And after day one, I didn't know it was there. Day two, we got away with it. It's amazing how many days we actually got away with it. But because the sandwich stayed there and was undealt with, it didn't get any better. And slowly but surely, over time, over the weeks, I would come into this person's room and say, what is that smell? And you're sniffing shoes and you're sniffing socks and you sniff your jocks, like, you know. In the end, we went through the whole cupboards, we found this bag, we found the culprit. That sandwich didn't get better over time, it got worse. And I think a lot of Christians' notion of peace is to say nothing and just hope it goes away. I'm telling you, that sandwich was not going away. We had to go on a search and rescue mission. We had to be proactive. And I think some of the peace that we seek, some of the peace that we desire, is never going to come our way because we're not prepared to get involved and have the necessary conversations in order to make peace. We're just hoping to keep peace. And so James is essentially saying the process in order for us to make peace with others comes through a clarity of voice. You want peace with others? It has to come through a clarity of voice. But if you want a clarity, you need to have godly wisdom. But you won't get that godly wisdom unless you first have inner peace. And so the process is it starts with peace in order to end with peace. And so getting back to what I was saying in my last point, if you don't have peace about the different people groups, and if you've got anger, bitterness, envy, strife, hatred, rage toward any people group, you'll never be able to bring peace. Because in order to bring peace, you must first have peace. But you might have peace, but in order to bring peace, godly wisdom is required and godly wisdom doesn't happen without someone saying something. So I know there's a lot of Christians who are happy to talk to people and they put their placards and tell people what God hates. That's not from a place of peace. And the message becomes a lie. And it polarises the church. And our voice becomes unheard because it's not clear. Because that's not the message of God. God doesn't hate this and hate that and hate you. God loves the world. So much so that He sent His Son. And Jesus so much loved this world with all its craziness, with all its people groups, with all its gender issues, 
with all its gossipers. You know, we often go to Romans chapter 1 to highlight certain people groups. But right in the midst of Romans 1 with all those people groups is gossipers, slanderers. Who hasn't been guilty of gossiping occasionally? And so in order for us to bring a message of peace, we must first be at peace. We must be at peace with God. We must get the heartbeat of God. You can't have wisdom if you don't have the heart of God. So this godly wisdom comes from having the heart of God. God, you love all people. And yet you have standards and values. And I don't know how to marry those two things, but I know getting angry is not the answer. God, give me your peace that I might be a voice. And so we get the peace of God. And we live in this peace. But how do I now bring this peace to the world? Well, I need your wisdom, Lord. Give me your wisdom. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. I've got your peace. Now I need your wisdom. Because you might have peace but not have wisdom. But if you have peace without wisdom, you'll never bring peace to others. So now I don't just need peace, which I pray for on a daily basis. I need wisdom. So my prayer goes, God, give me your peace. But Lord, I realise peace for me alone is just selfish. I need more than that. I need wisdom because I want to be able to bring peace to others. And so I need your godly wisdom. What do you say about marriage? What do you say about parenting? What do you say about raising kids? What do you say about about offence? What do you say about all these things? I need your wisdom. I need your wisdom, God, because I'm not smart enough. I'm not right. Christians, we're not right. God is. We don't have the monopoly of truth. God does. We get it wrong. So God, I need your wisdom. My prayer this morning in knowing what I was about to say, I said, God, I need your wisdom because I know how this can be so easily misunderstood. I need your wisdom, Lord. I'm not here just to be provocative. I'm not here just to say some things that are edgy to be cool. I am done with that. I want your wisdom. But you know what? Wisdom for me and peace for me still isn't going to get peace to people. There needs to be a clarion call. There needs to be a clarity of voice. And that's where courage to speak comes in. You want to make peace? You need to be at peace. You need to have godly wisdom. You need to have clarity of voice to be able to speak to people. Because the last thing we need is more arguments. The last thing we need is more hatred. The last thing we need is more of those things. What we need more of is peace, godly wisdom, clarity, so that we might make peace. The reason so much peace is not being made is because we live below the line and we live in this worldly wisdom. You said this, but you said that, and I said this, and I don't believe that, and I don't care, and you think this, and I think that. Whoa, 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 that's not going to get us there. What does God say? And if we're going to live in this age and make a difference, we're going to need to be at peace. We're going to need godly wisdom. We're going to need clarity 
in order to speak to our people in our workplace, schools, universities, shopping malls, family, friends, enemies. Because that's what we saw Jesus do. Jesus wasn't a pushover. He was not a peacekeeper. He was very bold. He was very courageous. He was very clear. But there's no one who ever loved people more than him. Who would agree along with me that there's a work of sanctification that needs to happen in me still and in you? We haven't arrived. And the book of James makes it oh so clear that we haven't arrived. But one of the marks of maturity is the church operating in a godly wisdom. Not he said, she said, I think, I feel. As the band comes up, James highlights that the only way to a redeemed tongue is godly wisdom. And the only way to godly wisdom is God Himself. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.